Welcome to The Sit Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of The Sit Down, a crime history podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nadu, and as always, we are presented by Barstool Sports. If you're watching this video currently on YouTube, make sure you hit that like button and let me know what you think of the content in the comment section below. If you're new around here or you just haven't done it yet, make sure you hit that subscribe button. If you're checking us out on iTunes, welcome in. Spotify, wherever you are, make sure you leave us a detailed review. Let us know what you think of the show today, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to get into another very interesting piece of crime content, and it's back to the world, the very interesting world of Mexican drug cartels. And if you followed the news recently, you've heard about some of the recent goings-on in the state of Sinaloa. The arrest of the son of El Chapo Guzman, Ovidio Guzman Lopez, has been detailed and discussed heavily, not only in Mexican news, worldwide, even here in the United States. We know the border is a major problem in this country. And I've talked about very openly, we talked about it with Yoan Grillo a couple of weeks ago, the dangers and the fact that to this day, to this hour, cartels are in this country. They're actively producing and selling narcotics to street gangs. They're making their way throughout the United States. And eventually we wonder, will it ever come to our doorstep, literally? Today, we're going to talk to a very interesting individual. In fact, I think one of the top journalists in the country, Mexico is a deadly place for journalists. And this person that we're going to speak to today uh, really keeps us updated on what's going on. He recently even embedded himself with the Sinaloa cartel. It's the great Luis Chaparro, and he joins us on the sit-down. Luis, I think you have one of the most interesting YouTube channels out there. I made sure in the description of this video, I included it. I urge anyone that has an interest in this subject to go check it out. The thing about the cartel content that I find so interesting, Luis, is that most of the people that I talk about are historical, right? Whether it's John Gotti or Al Capone or, or Pablo Escobar. But this is happening in real time, right? This is happening right now as we speak. First of all, I want to welcome you in. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, man. It's a, it's a real honor to, to be here on your show. You're doing a terrific work on all the uh, mafia-related uh, stories, man. Appreciate that. And, um, you know, I think one thing I learned about all these different crime groups and organizations is they all are somewhat pretty similar, really. I mean, they have an organizational group at the top, but... A lot of this is going to be about the Sinaloa cartel, which has become kind of something that people know about even more casually, right? The, you know, we I talked about this with Yoan Grillo, the 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 the, the likelihood of is a, someone like El Chapo, is he one of the most recognizable criminal people in the history of America, even though he wasn't American? And when you think about like the John Gotti's and the Al Capones and people like that, El Chapo was extremely recognizable, but the interesting thing we'll talk about is the Sinaloa cartel, he actually didn't really lead, right? In fact, no one really has led it. It's a, it's a little different from, let's say, the Gulf cartel or, or, or the CJNG where there's a, a leader. Um, but I, before we get into that, I want to ask you, because I don't know that I've ever seen anyone ask you this. Tell me about your life, like growing up. This is the first time speaking to you. You're obviously someone that, you know, you're, you're a Mexican, uh, American. Uh, you live in America now, but you grew up in Mexico. Tell me about your childhood. How did you get into this line of work? Um, and I guess ultimately, what does your family think of all this? 
Sure, man. Um, well, I was uh, born and raised in Ciudad Juarez, uh, Mexico, right at the border with El Paso, Texas. Um, and I grew up uh, on a on a middle upper class family in in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, my dad is a, is an attorney. My mom is a doctor, so I have no no one on my background to you know like that that was actually a journalist who, who pursued any journalism career or whatever. I think. My first approach to journalism was uh, when I was in high school and I read this magazine called Proceso, which is one of the top magazines in Mexico uh, on investigative uh, journalism. And I completely fell in love with it. And I started, you know, like kept reading, started like writing stories. Uh, I then went to um, to um, college to following a, a journalism degree, which I ended up uh, obtaining. But uh, but right since the beginning, I thought, I mean, my view with journalism has always been that journalism is made out in the streets and not really at a desk or, you know, at a school. So I just basically needed the paper. And back then, of course, I didn't know anything about journalism, how to write, how to start a story, how to follow up a story, sources, whatever. But I knew that I wanted to tell something because uh, I was... I, I grew up in the 90s in Ciudad Juarez when El Señor de los Cielos, the Lord of the Skies, uh, Amado Carrillo Fuentes, founder of the Juarez Cartel, um, he was huge in, in the city. Uh, my sister and I went to a private school in, in Mexico, in, in Ciudad Juarez, and both of Amado Carrillo's uh, sons were on our uh, were classmates. Uh, the youngest was with my sister, the older was uh, with me uh, in elementary school. So we crossed paths and I kept hearing stories since, since I was a child, how these drug trafficker was seen as successful and as a major, you know, player in the in business. And he had like two or three different wives at that school. And sometimes he will show up and will knock the door on my, on my, on my class and ask for Andresito, which was his, uh, his son that was in my class. Uh, and he was, um, you know, with two armed men on his back. And it was crazy because it was like so normal. But then I kept growing up with those, with those stories. And then in 2008, by the end of 2008, there was a war in, in, in the streets of my city. It was uh, called the most uh, dangerous city in the world. Um, because we, we started seeing over 13 murders a day, which was crazy high for Mexico back then. I guess for all the world, other than, um, you know, Middle East and, and, and places that was Absolutely. at war, that were at war at that moment. So I was like, what, what happened? Then drug traffickers began to be seen as bad persons, as, as killers, as assassins. And I was like, dude, I grew up with those guys being looked up for. And now they're like the bad people. And, you know, my family had a lot of uh, friendship with a businessman, like basically the, the guys who own the whole uh, city of Ciudad Juarez. And they began to be scared of them, you know, but I was like, they, they were your friends. I remember you hanging out with those guys. And then all of a sudden, no one wants to talk to those guys. What happened? And then in, and then that's when I started college. In 2007, I was already in college, and then I went to the local newspaper called El Diario de Juarez, and I was um, I applied for um, you know a delivery boy. I applied for a job as delivering papers. I, I thought that I was going to be the first one to read the news, which was a big perk for 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 me. I didn't really need the money, so whatever what they paid me, but I wanted to be around journalists. 
So I was like, so maybe I get there super early in the morning and I get to hang around with those guys and work my way in. Then the editor uh, made a mistake and he thought I was applying for a copy editor position, which I never denied. So he asked me like, so you're here for the copy, for the, uh, copy editor, right? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I had no clue what a copy editor was. And I literally had to learn two or three hours how to do the job of a copy editor. Um, he, he, uh, he realized that he messed up like, uh, like eight months later, I was already hired and everything. And he was like, dude, you already know how to do the job. You got this job by, you know, basically lying because of my mistake, but then you want to keep the job. And I was like, yes, of course. And I started, you know, basically doing, uh, style correction and all that stuff that the copy editor does for other local journalists while still trying to figure out what was happening in, in my city. So I was, I was, I, I literally learned the, the bad way. You know, I, I learned by applying to a position that was not open. I learned by uh, questioning uh, my, my, my parents, uh, friends uh, in the real world. I went to college, but I seldom learned anything, man, to be honest. It didn't really... Well, I think in, in essence, I mean, I even look at the way I created what I have. I mean, I, it, a lot of it's pretty ridiculous, right? You either, you know, lie to get somewhere or you're self-taught in a way and you just do what you got to do. And once you get in the door, it's your yeah. job to take it to the next level. And looking back, no one ever cares because it's really just about what's going on today. And you took it, you ran with it. I think it's interesting because you, you mentioned kind of how when you were younger, right? Because I figure we're probably the close to the same age, you know, early thirties, mid thirties. Um, you know, when you were a kid, you know, let's say in elementary school, we, we didn't really necessarily see the, the, the taking cartels into the paramilitary group until like the end of the nineties. So they became these kind of like military style people that, that were kind of attacking the government and the military back then when, when you were a kid, I'm sure it was, you know, more, um, kind of the cowboy hats and the, you know, yeah. the, the businessmen kind of people. And they had the desperado look to them, yeah. but, you know, and then we would start to get into as you're in high school, probably the, you would see the execution tapes and the, some of the more kind of stylistic theatrical things. So yeah. you're right. It kind of takes it to this another level. And then they go from being kind of welcome to being the enemy. Right. Yes, exactly. And and that's, I mean, again, like I, I literally learned everything the, the bad way, you know, I mean, I remember when I started writing, uh, I went like working my, my way up in the newspaper or whatever. And then um, I was made correspondent for a uh, international news uh, agency. It's, it's called EFE, which is basically Associated Press, but in Europe in, for Spain. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, you know, like writing about like all the murders happening in my city until one night. Uh, my editor called me, he woke me up and he told me that there was five kids killed in one of the major, you know, club strips in Ciudad Juarez. I went out, it was already like three in the morning. I had a motorcycle and I went out uh, to see what, what ha happened. And then I met the photographer who was working with me and he was already there. He took some photos and I asked him to show me the photos and he was all of my friends. Uh, my, my five, uh, my five friends were killed on the, that same night in that same place. I was supposed to be there, but I was working so much and still going to college that I didn't really have the time to go out. I was, you know, like falling asleep on my day classes and all that stuff. So I was like, I just fell asleep on my, at my place at my, my house. And, uh, I was still living with my parents and seeing, uh, 
all of my friends there uh, murder, you know, like sparked this question in my head, like what, what happened? Like who was responsible for this and why? Uh, I, up until this day, I have no clue where, why they were killed in that bar, including their girlfriends and everybody. But I literally was left with no friends. I mean, I had to start over making new friends uh, and having that thing on the back of my mind. And I think that pushed me forward to start writing more about drug cartels, drug organizations, to get near and more closer to sources, you know, uh, that knew about what was happening in the city until I, again, like probably two or three years after that. Uh, one source who was collaborating with the DEA, but he was also a trafficker in Juarez, starting, you know, um, basically sharing information with me about this woman uh, working with the police uh, department in Juarez, but she was sleeping with everyone. She was sleeping with narcos, she was sleeping with uh, federal police, military police officers, and she was trafficking information all around for money. So I started publishing stories about her until one night I was kidnapped by the local police and they put a, a gun in the back of my head. Uh, they took me to this empty, you know, like land. Uh, and then they started fighting. Two of the commanders started fighting between each other. And I managed to, to flee uh, when, when they started fighting. And fortunately I had the dual citizenship. So I left Juarez for probably nine, 10 months. I mean, have you ever gotten to a point like that point, right, where you're thinking like, because I've always been fascinated by like people that do what you do, right? Because because like I, you know, I pu push around the edges and, and talk about some of this stuff, but you're actually in these countries, right? You took about these people that are reported in Haiti and, 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 and Syria and places like that. I mean, do you ever think to yourself like, there's got to be an easier way to it than this? Right. Have you ever thought about maybe just saying, you know what, this is just too much? Yeah, that seems like something where you're you're kidnapped. I've been contacted by gangsters. You know, I don't want you to write about this stuff like that, but I don't really pay no mind to it, you know, because the mafia is a, a way different thing than it used to be. But you look at what you're doing. I mean, have you ever gotten to that point where it's like, maybe is this all worth it? Am I, you know? Yeah, man. No, no, I totally get it. Like, of course, that time. I, I had the opposite reaction. I had this very immature, young reaction where I was like, fuck, no, I'm not going to be, you know, like intimidated by these Pushed guys. Around, yeah. um, that means that I'm doing the right thing and whatever. And then my my bosses at the news agency and at the local paper, because I was doing both things at the same time, they removed me from, from every source, uh, writing about drug traffic and violence and all that stuff. And I had to write, you know, stuff like sports and you know like social gatherings that kind of stuff which was not your thing yeah. um they uh, we filed a complaint an official complaint of, with, with the human rights organization and all that stuff and and then they wanted me to do like a huge campaign bringing awareness about like the work of a journalist and i wanted to stay silent so i was like too afraid by, by then uh and then after that i remember like nine months later do you know like these this was probably the darkest times ever I've ever had because I was deprived from going to my city, deprived mm -hmm. from doing what I love with a bunch of, you know, like emotions about like, you know, like suffering different emotions anger, yeah. and sadness. And then remembering my friends that were killed, yeah. and, you know, a lot of anxiety and all that stuff. So I remember every night I was living in an apartment where you can see from, you can see Juarez from El Paso. So I will see all the 
flashing lights from different police officers and all that stuff, police cars. And I, I was like, every night I was, I used to cry a lot, you know, like I was just watching the city and crying until I fell asleep and then over again, then over again, many, many, like for nine months, it was like really dark times I, I went through those days. Um, and then afterwards, I received a call from one of my sources who used to work with the Juarez cartel, with La Linea, uh, which was the armed branch for the Juarez cartel. And he told me, he asked me like, what happened? And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I never told anyone. And he was like, no, I learned that some, something happened to you with the local police, with the peaks, he told me. Uh, and I was like, I don't, I don't think so, man. No, I, I mean, I'm ju I just moved to El Paso because it's easier for me. The newspaper opened new offices in El Paso. So I'm working out of El Paso now. Uh, and he's like, nah, don't bullshit me, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was being, you know, like a good source to, to you, very transparently honest. To let me what happened. And I, I kept denying anything happened. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, let's talk later. And then he asked me to turn on the news at nine, nine in the, in the night. I turned on the news and the two police cars that um, kidnapped me were completely riddled with bullets. Uh, four officers killed right there. I'm pretty sure that they, they were the same guys who got me, who kidnapped me. And I, I remember back then we used to talk through these uh, walkies called Nextel. Yeah, uh, they were very. I, I, I had a few of them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I I I pinged him, and I was like, "Dude, what the shit? Like, what did you just do?" And he was like, "I didn't do anything, man. They had it coming. I told you those guys were pigs. They had it coming. And when I learned what happened to you, um, I was I thought like this might be as good time as any other to get rid of them. So they kind of, uh, you know, killed two birds with one stone, if you will. Uh, yeah. Where you kind of had an issue with them, but they kind of had an issue, but this was a good reason to do it. Exactly. Wow. That's incredible. And was, so you're, you're kind of at a point in your life where you, you, you lose your friends, you miss your job, you know, in a weird way you have this, you know, and I don't want to say anything that's not true, but you had an addiction to what you were doing. You really enjoyed it. You loved it. It was your calling. And I think that's something that, you know, when you have a calling, you know, you, you don't care about some of the things that could happen. Did you though understand the value of, when that stuff kind of happened, did you really understand that to do your job at the right level, you have to have the good sources, but B, and I want you to kind of explain because I, I, I've, I've noticed in some of the comments of some of your videos, occasionally you'll find people that um, belittle you and say, yeah. you, you work for this person, you work for that person, you're a mouthpiece for this group. Um, kind of explain the workings of what you have to do there to, to, to survive in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I get accused, you know, like from every single side of the spectrum, I get accused by criminals that I work for these or that agency or police station or the DA or the FBI or the Mexican government. Then I get accused from the Mexican uh, government sources to work with a criminal group, the Sinaloa cartel with the Cartel Jalisco cartel with the Zetas back then. I get accused of all, from, like also like I get accused from U.S. readers that I'm, you know, like trying to go against the U.S. because I'm Mexican or whatever. And then I get accused from the Mexicans. You can't win. Speak right. English or bashing your country. So I get heat from all over. And you have to grow with a thick skin and with uh, a lot of certainty of what you're saying. And also the certainty. I think this is the most important part of this talk. There's certainly that you're going to make mistakes all the time. As you were saying at the beginning, sometimes talking about criminal groups that happened 
10 years before, 20 years before, you sort of like get more, more details about what really happened, or at least an official version of what happened and an, and an unofficial version of what happened. And then you kind of like go in between. When you're writing about stuff happening at the moment, um, people getting captured, people getting killed, new uh, criminal organizations, new top buses, all that stuff, you, you get a lot of things wrong and that's okay because we what we want to do is to bring what is happening right at the time that is happening and then revisiting what happened a couple of months, days, years later and go back and see like, okay, what happened back then? Like what, this is what really happened. But I, I, I made pieces with, you know, like knowing that I'm going to make mistakes all the time because I'm in the I'm in the places where things are happening as I go, like with the capture of a video. Um, that very morning, my phone started. I have three different uh, border phones other than my personal phone, where, I, where like I, where most of my sources in different places call me. I usually wake up like five thirty in the morning, start reading news and all that stuff. Um, but I overslept that. Uh, I think it was a Thursday or Saturday. I can't remember. I always left that day and my, my, one of my phone was going super crazy. And it was like many sources telling me that something was happening in Sinaloa that apparently El Chapo's son has been captured. And I disregarded everything because I was like, dude, I don't, I don't think so. Like, to be honest, it's just maybe another Sicario that was, you know, so it's a lot of chisme, a lot of, you know, like talking. Disregarded the whole messages until I saw one message one Twitter uh, message that told me that the town where the operation was happening was Jesus Maria. And I knew from beforehand that Ovidio Guzman was living in Jesus Maria. So I was like, okay, this is very detailed, you know, because there's nothing going on in Jesus Maria but Ovidio. Um, so I woke up, started calling and got a bunch of stuff not, not right because at the beginning they told me that uh, Ovidio was still fighting inside the house, that one of his daughters was injured, that he was already in the in, out of the airport, and then that the DA was in the house. So a lot of like crazy stuff. Um, I had to write a story. Uh, so I wrote with, uh, you know, like wh whatever sources I can, I could get more solid. And then I revisited the story. And then a week later, I traveled to that place to enter Ovidio's house and try to figure out what really happened. What um, I want to kind of talk about kind of the overall state of Sinaloa and how in Quilacan, how that Chapitos essentially, you know, have the entire public behind them, you know. And I've talked about this in several different interviews and stuff that I've done about how, you know, in a way, it's like even in America with, with the mafia, for instance, most um, areas that are controlled by the mafia are more entwined with dealing with the mafia themselves over the police. They don't trust the police. They don't trust the government. And in Mexico, I mean, as you will explain, the government is entirely corrupt and they don't buy into the government. So people in Jesus Maria and Quilacan, they all kind of side with the, the cartels. But what gave you the idea? Because that's some really rare access, right? You You decide, hey, you know, this is a house that it was a crime scene. You know, now it's not necessarily a crime scene, but it's vacant. I'm going to just go to it. Talk through how that happened. Did you have to get any approval? Did you just go? Yeah. What gives you that idea? Because that's a, I saw your video when, when you did that. And I was, I guess you don't think about it. I, it's fascinating that you decided to do that. Yes, man. I mean, at the beginning, I wasn't thinking of going inside Ovidio's house at all. I wanted to go to Jesus Maria to ask 
you know, neighbors and people, how were their, uh, what, what happened that night? How were they living with Ovidio on a site? If, if he was actually there, if they, if the Mexican government killed innocent people, if the sicarios killed or take, took uh, innocent kids, you know, like what really happened? Didn't have really much time to think about it because I was literally asked to de be deployed uh, one morning and I had to leave like that same afternoon. My, my editor asked me, uh, "Will you? do you think it's a good idea to actually go to Jesus Maria? Uh, and I was like, yeah, but if I go, it, it will need to happen like now, like today, because we're already a week late uh, and I don't know what's going to happen later. If they're going to, I was already thinking that those guys were going to take back the town after the military left or whatever. So I was like, that's going to be a more dangerous place to be there. So I want to go while the Mexican military is still there where, where we can still meet other, you know, press member, either local press or international press, whatever. Um, so I literally bought like five or six different flights for, for if I missed one, I will leave the next morning and all that stuff. Uh, five different nights in different places. So I maxed my, you know, my, my credit card buying flights and nights everywhere, every single, you know, two hours, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then I had to go through a very tight uh, and very tense meeting with a legal department and security department. Like, what are you going to do there? Um, at the end, all of them decided that I couldn't be there more than seven uh, hours in, in the ground because I had already received threats by the Sinaloa cartel after entering the uh, whole weed operation of all of Chapitos. I got permission to enter to the weed industry because they, they're pushing now the weed industry to a national market in Mexico. And they're grabbing a bunch of different ideas from, from California. And so you had essentially at this point, you had kind of a tedious relationship with them because previously you had, and I had heard you mention this, and I'll explain that like Chapitos has went into the legal weed business in a way, right. Yeah. Where they're trying to market that because they know in America, that's a booming business. Yeah. So you, you had talked about, you went to these locations and you were kind of writing stories and they weren't happy. Let me ask you, what kind of things do they say to you? Like, do they just contact you and say, Hey, you know, what, what do they say to you? So, so basically at the beginning, I, I had a lot of sources in, in Sinaloa, in different places in Aloha with the cartel Jalisco. I have a bunch of sources too. U.S., um, you know, like three letters agencies. Like I, I'm, I'm grabbing sources from all over, but many of those sources are disposable, right? Like they either get killed, arrested, they just disappeared or things like these happen. So this time I went uh, and I asked one of the local guys that I know that he's very close to Los Chapitos. He was actually very close to Ovidio. Um, I had gone many other times to, you know, fentanyl labs, meth labs, to interview sicarios, to training camps of, uh, of sicarios and all that stuff in, in Sinaloa. So this time around, I just wanted to do something about weed. So that was like in, uh, it seemed that it was going to be easier, right? Because it was just weed and they mm -hmm. wanted also to, you know, to, to be very honest and transparent about the weed industry. Um, but then I think that guy didn't really disclose to the higher tops what I was doing there. Because he told me that it was super easy, that was an easy, uh, you know, task or whatever. I never, I never hand out any any money to to these guys. I usually just push and push and push. And after working many other times with them, 
I usually just, it's just going to be me and my cell phone, um, you know, and nothing huge. It's not going to be a huge production because when you travel with massive production, they usually ask for money, right? If you're traveling with two or three different cameramen, a sound guy, whatever. So it's, it complicates everything more. So my reporting is usually me on my own with a, you know, with a notepad, all style, sometimes uh, voice recording, or my cell phone to grab like photos and videos and all that stuff. So this time around, I went only with my with my camera, with my um, phone camera, and another uh, friend of mine also with a phone camera. Um, everything was cool. Actually, the documentary came out really well. The reporting was amazing. It was fun. It was intense. It was uh, very exclusive access to the whole operation inside the weight industry, brands. Uh, edibles, uh, you know, greenhouses, uh, huge, uh, uh, you know, fields of weed. And this was a legit business. You said, yeah, oh, this is going to be fine. They probably want me to do this. But in turn, it was probably not what they wanted because they were trying to probably monopolize it, right? And be the only exactly. ones doing it. Exactly. They got pissed because after reporting everything and all, I published one story talking about how the Los Chapitos wanted to create a new industry. They were grabbing, you know, uh, ideas from California and everything. But then another guy from a, from a national Mexican news outlet went in, didn't really ask for permission. Mm. They used a local fixer. They went inside one of these dispensaries, grabbed photos and published a story right after mine, before my documentary came out. Uh, so that brought them a lot of heat because they got yeah. the bosses high on top, got confused, and they thought that that was me because I never revealed any brand, any names, any locations. So I was like, this is not used. I mean, I guess the story can sustain itself even if I don't say where exactly the dispensaries are located, you know. But these guys publish, you know, like the streets where the dispensaries were located, the, you know, like the front facades of the dispensaries. The mm -hmm. names of several of them involved in the in the in the business, so they thought that was me, and then they called me and said like, "Dude, you fucked up. Like, you shouldn't never publish that story. Take it down, or whatever." And I, I I thought they were talking about my story, and I was like, "Dude, I'm not taking anything down. I'm that was my reporting. I went to do that. I told you I'm not doing PR. I'm doing journalism." So they use you as like a scapegoat for this person's behavior. So yeah. you, they kind of blamed you for everything, and exactly. that's kind of. Yeah, that's essentially the, why. In the beginning, we got like so confused because I thought they were talking about my story and they right. thought that that other story was was me. So after they got all together, like the some of the top narcos working for Los Chapitos, they called me on a conference call. And to be honest, I was pretty, pretty scared about that because these we're talking about like powerful people. And I was like, <laughs> I remember I was so jumpy that I my reaction was probably not the best. And I told them, like, guys, you need to stop using so much fucking cocaine. You're all jumped in your head. This is not happening outside of your small world in Culiacan. Think bigger. I didn't even reveal anything, guys. You're just using too much coke and getting together. So stop getting together. Go do your things and stop using so much coke. And then we'll talk. Um, you said that to them. And they were, like, so surprised. They were like, yeah, yeah, viejo, yeah, you know, well, I mean, yeah, probably you're right, but. Do you think they re do you think they respect the things you say to them? Because that, that's pretty ballsy. I mean, you essentially tell people that, you know, do very depraved things. Hey, you're using two-minute drugs, bro. You know, get your head right. Dude, that's when, ballsy. 
I always try to do the right thing and have my things right and have transparency. So when it comes to this point, I'm sure of what I'm saying. And if I fucked up, then I will say, you know, guys, I'm, I'm sorry. It was my honest mistake. I didn't want yeah. to jeopardize anyone. Uh, it was a confusion, whatever. But then in that meeting, we figured it out that that was not my story. So I was like, no, no, wait, wait, wait. I never published that photo, man. And they're like, so you're not, I'm not, not that was not me. They're like, so who the who the hell was that? And I'm like, I don't know. And then they hung up the phone, and I guess they went after the local fixer guy that that did that or made that access. They left me alone for a time, and then I was about to publish my documentary. They called me again. They're like, no, you can't publish anything now from this point. And I'm like, dude, you're not my editor. You're not paying me for this stuff. Like, I'm a journalist. I went in the right way, did the right thing. Someone else me messed up. I'm, I'm not going to let these affect my reporting, my story, all the work I put into this. So I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And they're like, dude, you're going to jeopardize a lot of people here, whatever. And I'm like, I'm not jeopardizing anything, man. Did I ask you to be a drug trafficker? Did I put a gun to your head and ask you like to get into this business? No, right? I'm taking my risk as a journalist. You take yours as a, right. as a drug trafficker. This is what happens. This is what you're going to face either with me, with the DA, with another journalist, with whoever, man, like this is the life you chose. This is the life I chose, right? Let's You're just, just trying to be fair to them. Like in the end, like most people aren't going to be fair. They're just going to publish it. They don't ask for any approval or anything. You're actually trying to go through the right channels and be fair and be stern. You, it really seems like you, you've you mastered how to speak to these people. And I think that's why maybe in the end, they, they kind of respect you and have the willingness to, to give you stories. So you're telling in a way, once your video stuff happened, there was still a little bit of blowback and, and they were a little skeptical to let you around there, but they ultimately yes. do. Cause at the end they asked me not to go back to, to Culiacan. They asked me like, dude, you know what? You're not, you're not welcome here anymore. You're being very disrespectful. I'm, we're asking you not to do one thing and you're doing your way. And then one of them told me something that hit me really deep, but that was probably true. He told me that you're more of a journalist than anything else. I get it. So that's the last thing he said before hanging up. He's like, so you're, it is más periodista que otra cosa. You're more journalist than anything else. Uh, and I get it. And boom, he hung up the phone. And I was like, kind of like pissed about that. Cause I was like, what, what the hell did you try to say to me? You know, like that I'm not human, that I'm not, you know, whatever, that I'm more of a journalist than a human being, or mm -hmm. I don't, I don't get it. Um, but then like that, that stuff kept, you know, like make, circling my mind. And I was like, wow, probably I'm portraying that, that I'm more of a journalist than I actually respect my own life or whatever. Um, and, but then I, I was like, that was the last communication we had. So I couldn't really know if I was safe going back to Culiacan. I couldn't really talk to my sources in the, inside that world. I have other sources who I called beforehand. And I was like, dude, hey man, of course you know why I'm calling you, right? And he's like, yeah, they got the capture of Raton. I'm guessing, you're, I'm guessing you want to do something around that. I'm not sure I can help you, but what what's up? And I was like, I, I want to travel there, but beforehand I need to tell you something happened with these guys. Like I had this beef and all that stuff. And he's like, oof, dude, you're in, in, in deep shit. You know, like, I, I don't think I can help you this time. Uh, let me ask around because he's uh, his family of one of the one of the top head security guys for for high up people in Sinaloa and see what can we do. Uh, he called his uh, his family friend or family member and 
And then he got back to me and he's like, dude, they told me literally this. If he wants to come, let him come. I can promise anything. So I was like, oof, that sound, that didn't really sound too convincing, you know? So then that was happening the morning that I, I had already bought my flights and everything. So uh, I was like, damn. So yes, I mean, I'm going and let's see, let's see what happens. And so you had no doubt, like maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't do this. Cause, cause you had always had a pretty good relationship up until then. I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're venturing into, you know, possibly one of the you know worst places on the earth, really. Yeah. I mean, did you ever think about, Hey, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this yes, should be the one yes, I don't go to. Definitely. And I thought to myself, like, you know what? Uh, I guess, I guess I'll do it and I'll go as I feel if I land in Culiacan and then all of a sudden while I'm there, I don't feel safe. I'll just grab a next flight, but my, my a next flight two hours from there and leave or stay at a hotel or rent a car and then leave, drive, you know, like, let's see, let's, let's go as I go, you know, and I usually, I, when I, when I'm not sure about something, I usually go as I go and. So I literally landed that morning. I landed, no, I landed the next morning because I had to overlay in Mexico City. Um, and I landed the next morning, like six in the morning. And I called because I know that many of my sources have a bunch of eyes at the airport. So I literally, I knew that they were going to know that I was there, even though I was wearing a face mask and, you know, I caught my hair because I used to have longer hair. Uh, you know, I was wearing glasses and a hat. And I was like, they're going to know, man. I, I better just do the right thing. And if, you know, like something happens, well, something happens. I'm already here. So I sat at, the, at, a, at a local uh, coffee inside the airport and messaged my contact there, the other guy that I was talking to earlier. And I was like, hey, brother, uh, guess what? And he's like, what's up? And I'm like, I'm, I'm actually in your, in your turf. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I know. I'm actually outside, man. I'm, I'm picking you up. He already and knows. I was like, and I was like, <laughs> wow. what, what, what are you, what are you writing? And, and he's like, walk, uh, walk out, go to the left. And then I saw a lot of uh, military arriving, like three or four Humvees arriving to the airport. And he's like, what's up with these watchos with a uh, military? And I was like, I have no clue, man. Like, I guess they're, they're taking care of me. Right. Just like cracking a joke. And he's like, are you sure they're not with you? And I'm like, no, man, like I'm, I'm out, I'm out by myself here. Uh, that's it. And he's like, all right, I'm in the uh, green pickup truck uh, to your right. And I was like, all right, jumped in, say hi. Hey, what's up, man? And he's like, what's up? What, what are you doing? And I was like, I have to. And he's like, dude, you're, you're, you're fucking crazy, but all right, let's, uh, what do you want to do? What do you need to do? You're already here. Um, and I, and I then, I asked him, like, just give me, like, five minutes. I need to call another man uh, here. I called another local photographer who I've never met before, but I knew his work. And I was like, hey, compa, I'm here in Sinaloa. I'm, I just arrived here. Uh, would you be cool to go up with me to Jesus Maria? I can pay for the day and all that stuff. And uh, it was basically as a fixer for me. I'm with, uh, with a source of mine that works for this organization. Uh, just full disclosure, uh, let me know. And he was like, yes, uh, let's, let's meet at this hotel and let's, let's go. So I managed to have two different people from two different backgrounds with me in case something was going bad one way or the other, you know? So I felt pretty safe then. I was like, okay, I'm riding with one of these guys, but I also have a local photographer with me. 
Um, so we started going up to Jesus Maria, um, a bunch of uh, military checkpoints. We had to go through that very different uh, military checkpoint. This guy, this guy who works with Sinal Cartel, he carries very different batches from different news outlets, fake news outlets, of course. So every time he will, we will be stopped at a, at a checkpoint. I had my, my credentials for one of the, you know, uh, magazines I work for. The local photographer has his uh, batch from his uh, newspaper. And this guy will show up with just any random credential, you know, like, I don't know, whatever media.com. And, and they will be like, okay, journalist, go, go ahead. And we, when we arrived to Jesus Maria, I knew that it was not going to be that easy because the last checkpoint was not a military checkpoint, was actually a Sicarius checkpoint right at the arches that says, welcome to Jesus Maria. Um, so I was like, okay, so I'm, I'm late or too early. I don't know. Because there's no military anymore here. And these guys have already taken again the control of the town. Um, I told them that I was just going to talk to local people to do, you know, like photos, videos. And they were like, all right. And they let me go. Um, these local um, source knew where Ovidio's house were. So he started driving around town. And as we arrived there, the photographer told me, dude, I think there is a, like state police out there. Like we saw two guys and a woman. And then the, the guy driving, the guy from the Sinaloa cartel, so we know that's Ovidio's mom, that's Griselda, man. And he got nervous. So I got even more nervous. I was like, well, so what the shit should I do, man? Like, what, what, what is she doing here? Because I know she's she's flagged as um, one of the, also like the main targets from, from the U.S., you know? So I was like, so I just- Chapo's wife. Chapo's former wife, yeah, ex-wife, yeah. yeah. So I jumped out of the car and had my cell phone with me on a, you know, like on a stick, on a gimbal. Uh, and then immediately she put up her face mask and start saying like, no, 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 no. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not recording. I'm not, you know, and then her attorneys, you know, like jumped off of me and they're like, Hey man, just, are you recording anything? I'm like, no, I'm not recording anything, man. Make sure you're not recording. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not recording. Okay. Who are we, who is with you? And I was like, this is a local photographer. This is my, my local driver. Uh, and I'm just, I'm. Luis Chaparro, I'm working for this magazine. I'm doing this story of Jesus Maria. I saw you coming out of the house of a video and I want to know if, I, and then he immediately started saying, dude, you can be here while we're here, right? So just leave, do whatever you want to do, whatever you need to do, but please leave immediately uh, these, you know, like these, este terreno, like this land. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm leaving. Oh, cool. And he's like, make sure that you're not recording while we're here. And I'm like, all right, I'll respect that. I left, started talking to local people, you know, like to this old woman whose house was all riddled with bullets. Uh, another woman who told me that her son got shot by the Mexican military. Uh, and he's, he's, uh, he was in the hospital fighting for his life. A 12 years old kid that went out for food. Uh, another guy who had her wife uh in a wheelchair and he needed to take her every other day to Culiacan to the city um to get medical attention but his car got completely rid of with bullets so it was useless um so people was pretty pissed at the Mexican government now the older people like the 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 uh the the 
the elders in these yeah. towns, how did they're they're very pro cartel, right? Everybody was very pro Guzman, specifically that Guzmans. You know, like they they told me literally this. That guy told me like that man was a hero, man. That man was a hero. If we got sick, he will get us prescriptions. He will get us medicine, money. Uh, he will help everybody in town, and he's not asking for anything in return. He was just living his peaceful life in that house, not harming anyone. He had a small gathering with his family, with his three daughters. He was not messing with anyone. I don't know why the Mexican military came here and caused trouble. So Did there you, was me, like... Let me ask you something. I'm curious about this because this kind of relates to, I think, the overarching question, okay? Yeah. Are... As someone that lives in America, okay, I've never been, I've been to Mexico once, Tijuana mm -hmm. for a night, it was nothing. As someone that looks at this from here, you know, mm -hmm. I look at it and I say, okay, these are the bad people, yeah. Sinaloa, the, the different groups, right? Are they actually the good people here? Because this no, business no. goes on regardless, this doesn't it? I mean, the government sounds like the real tyrants here, aren't they? I mean, the, yeah. the people on the streets don't like the government, but they like these people. It almost sounds like they're Robin Hood to yeah. all these people. They're the real heroes, are they? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think at all that they are the good people. At the end, these are violent people. Uh, sure. The Tapitos are pretty much violent. Uh, they've killed almost every single leadership that they find around, like priests, journalists, local politicians. You know, like everyone. So I don't, I don't think they're at all uh, heroes. The thing is they have been very smart if not trained in getting social bases in getting like social support because mm -hmm. i think that's the only weapon that the mexican military don't have like yeah. the mexican military has enough firepower and enough men to capture and grab and basically dismantle every single organization for as big as it is they have enough like the mexican military is is very powerful even though we read that they're overpowered, whatever. That is not true. Like if you if you really go into what is the Mexican military, what kind of equipment they have, what kind of training they have, they're pretty much powerful. They have very elite groups trained by the world's elite groups, you know. So they're very well trained and prepared. But the one thing they don't have is social support. And this is what cartels have and have been earning more and more as you know, as I guess Mexico had a real split between cities and rural Mexico and rural Mexico stayed behind. And we're talking that 60, over 60% of the country, it's still rural. Mm -hmm. And these guys living are living in a very impoverished, um, you know, environment with a lack of, you know, basic services like access to a doctor, access to education access to even a paved road. Um, and guess who is paving the roads, who's building hospitals, who's building schools? Cartel. It's cartel with, with drug money or extortion money or whatever money. They are, when the COVID hit, um, they were the ones enforcing COVID measures other than the government. They were the ones that if they caught you out in the street, not using a face mask, they will beat the hell out of you to give out a lesson to all every other people to use the face mask, to get vaccinated, 
to do like social distancing. It's crazy because those guys. You know, I I say this to all the folks that watch these that didn't give a shit about vaccines. Just be happy you don't live in Sinaloa or Michoacan or those places because you don't have a fucking choice there. You do what you're told and you do it. And, and, you know, I've heard about this really everywhere because I've looked into other cartels. You know, I've looked into that other group, uh, CSRL, right? That guy, El Maro. And he, I mean, he was so loved, like in some of those really small municipalities, right? Where, you know, and we saw it in Quilacan when they've come after a video multiple times. It wasn't just the Sicarios. It was people in the streets. I saw after the rest recently, you had women, children out in the streets, you know, get get out of here to the military. They don't want them here. It's That's really interesting you say that the social support that they have and years of decay and, and allowing these places to go impoverished. The only winners really and the heroes were the drug trade. Yeah. And they were so good to them. You never really think of that. That's amazing. Exactly. They have a they have a huge propaganda machine like cartels yeah. in, in Mexico. I think they learned at the very beginning with Los Cetas, right? When the oh, Cetas yeah. came out, they came out as very violent very ruthless and people started going against them people started like fearing los setas but not respecting them and not you know trying to get on their goods or whatever because they were they were seen as murderers like cold murderers they will kill just because they want to kill yeah, i've heard eat- like they were just like you know a lot of them were thought of as if it's just like drug addict like yes exactly addict, you know so people perceive that from them and i guess other cartels like the cartel de sinaloa and del golfo and all those guys learned the lesson and said like you know what? We need to get people on our side. So let's let's behave well. That we don't use drugs. We dress as proper military members. You know, with camo, bullet vest. We identify our, ourselves, and we're not dressed as civilians. So we use CJNG or CDS for Cartel de Sinaloa. Yeah. You know, so they're basically playing by the rule, quote unquote. You know, uh, identifying themselves, trying to be on the good side of the people, helping them, doing social labor. Uh, asking locals what do they want. If they want a job, they could easily get them to work as sicarios. You know, of course, they were they were taking advantage of all these young people. Are they um in these towns like Jesus Maria and places like that? Are they um you know because because I always relate it back to the mafia. The mafia used extortion as a almost like a benevolent society, right? Like a civic uh, society where, hey, you know, just give us fifty bucks a week, and you know, we'll make sure there's no crime and 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 you know, it's all a civic duty, right? It's like a p- political contribution yeah. in a way. Um, is that how they use extortion or do they just not do extortion at all because they don't want to take from their citizens? I think Sinaloa is one of the few states where extortion is really low, if existent. Uh, and this is only because the Sinaloa cartel has such a grasp on that town that they're not fighting really with anyone. So yes. they don't really need more money to keep Monopoly, more yeah. operations going in Sinaloa. Now, the Sinaloa cartel does extort, does use extortion in places like Chihuahua, Durango, Zacatecas, in places where they're actually fighting another faction right. and they need to keep funds going to keep mm-hmm. the war going. So they use extortion, kidnapping, all, all of those uh, different, you know, like ways to fund themselves. Um, but I guess, yeah, I mean, what they what they get is social support by, by this mass propaganda that has to do also with the narco corridos, uh, drug ballads, you know, like the uh, narco cultura. Now, now everybody wants to sing about El Raton or about JGL, JGL, Joaquin Guzman Loera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dude, this this music is getting to the top of the of the charts internationally, 
And this is because they are actually putting a lot of money also in the, in the music business to these music artists. I'm not generalizing talking about everyone, but I know for a fact that they're putting money to some of them to sing songs about them. And that's propaganda. And that's the music industry is made out of, out of money. It's not made out of, uh, you know, popularity or out of like how good as a musician you are, oh, it's about, about yeah. how much money you have. And that same happened with the with the mafia, with the Italian mafia, uh, at the very beginning in, in in states like New York or Chicago, right? A lot of singers like Sinatra was oh, so sure. totally intertwined with these guys, and most of his money and his success had to do with the Italian mafia support. Absolutely. And that's the same thing happening in Mexico with the drug battles with the corridos, and they're earning more social support by everybody singing their songs and looking up for them. And then the hats are using now, which are- And social media has added fuel to the fire too, because, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen, um, I've seen like different people report on like, some cartels are going to the point of like recruiting people through like gaming apps and like uh, Twitch and like all these crazy things. And you, I think, you know, as you mentioned, I think the question I asked, like, are these people here is in a way, I think in rural communities, like they are. They're looked at as the only person that's ever helped me are these people. Yeah. And why the hell do I want to go be uh, this or that when I could be like these people? They've always been there for me. They're the good guys. They're the ones helping me. And this is the problem and why we have crime everywhere. Because yeah. whether it's a black neighborhood or an Italian neighborhood or a Mexican neighborhood, the people that are really winning a lot of the time are criminals, yes. right? And, and that's all you've ever known. It's different from like from me or even from you. Me and you are, are similar in a way because my – I was never around criminals. I was yeah. never around gangsters. I think with the right ethics that I was given by my parents, I always saw the right from wrong. But so many people don't. Exactly. And, you know, they and see the music and they hear their favorite rappers yeah. talking about Chapo. So I saw a, a soccer player. I think he yeah. plays for Atlas or one of those groups <laughs> down there. He was recently uh, under an issue with the club because his kid had a – uh, Chapo themed birthday party. Yes, exactly. I don't know yes. if you heard about that. No, I, yeah, I totally. And it's, I mean, the same happened with the, with the um, mayor of Cuernavaca, right next to Mexico City, which used to be these uh, major soccer player called Temoc Blanco with with uh, with the America Club, mm -hmm. uh, and he had photos with people with the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. And now they're talking about all the links he had to a certain criminal group and. They're like they're 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 it's getting everywhere. It's it's literally um, penetrating every single aspect of our culture, and to no wonder. I mean, again, if you live in the U.S. and even if you don't trust the police, you still can sort of rely in, in police, right? Absolutely, you if can't rely there. Come, exactly, someone comes knocking your door and then try to or loots your house or someone grabbed your son or your daughter or your wife. What are you gonna do immediately? It's called nine one one. It's like someone entered my house and grabbed my wife or grabbed my son, you know, or stole my money or whatever. In Mexico, that's probably not what you're gonna do. Like, probably you're gonna say like, well, what I'm gonna call the police for? You know, it's just bureaucracy. Probably to have a paper that I can show that I was actually stolen from or that my girl is missing or my. So you're looking at America and you're saying like, wait a second. You actively want to get rid of the police. Yeah. 
Like you're looking at that and saying, that's crazy. Like we have that happening here and we have nowhere to turn when something actually bad happens. Because look, whether you like the police or not, they have a job to do. And, you know, most of them are not awful people, right? They're just trying to do a job and protect people and take bad people off the street. So you're looking at it as someone that's seen it, you know, and yeah. say the police are, 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 the, are the bad people. Here. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because I mean, at the end, you don't trust the police because they're probably being known for abusing their power. That's probably one of the one of the worst things happening in, in America right now, where the where the police force will abuse their power, killing uh, especially black people, Latino community leaders and all that stuff. That's that's something different than just like get, getting ta- getting a like putting a target at everyone. You know, like every single police will just knock on your door and you will be fearful of a police officer right. knocking at your door. That's how, what's happened in Mexico. So if you have a contact that has a contact that knows someone and you had your kid, your girl, your car, something missing out of your house, you're going to ask that contact, hey, man, this happened. Can you help me out? Through your contacts and then someone's gonna ask that content and eventually it's it's gonna end up in the ears of the cartel right like someone is asking for a favor a girl disappeared a man disappeared um you know uh, these guys car got stolen and they will find it in no second they will find it like that you'll get a call a couple of hours later probably two days later saying like hey we found your car we found your missing relative whatever um uh, and that's it you know, because I mean, in in in, in wealthy uh, neighborhoods in Mexico, for example, uh, they live off so well because they know, and they have many of them have links to c- people that that is involved in one of these criminal organizations. So they know that you can steal from them, you can kidnap them, you can extort them, because they know they're. I'm, we're pretty sure that they're gonna know someone high up, right? So that's happening in the middle class, lower class populations in Mexico. Uh, they, you know, they. What kind of things? Um, what kind of things do they do to uh, thieves and um, people like that? Uh, I know you you've kind of talked about that before. Uh, some of the the methods they use. Um, tell me about that. Yo, so basically, they they have one thing. At least in Sinaloa, they use this one thing, which is. Um, I, the last time I was there, I was introduced to these uh, mullet, you know, it's uh, basically, it looks like a cricket mullet. Um, and I was introduced to that as the constitution of the Sinaloa cartel. They're like, this is our constitution. This is what we use to make people do the, the right thing here. If we caught you uh, selling, you know, uh, extorting, robbing, whatever, They'll smack your ass over a hundred times until your skin comes off and you can sit for months and they're going to post that video online for your humiliation. So that's literally what the cartel does in that specific region in Sinaloa. They, they, they beat your ass so bad that you're, you're basically going to end up in the hospital. I've seen, Uh, I've seen those large like pizza paddles they've used as well where they're like, you know, but some, places it's more brutal isn't it yes some of the places that will tie you to to up to an electricity post uh some other places will cut your hands some other places will cut your your hat there are many different messages they send for whatever you did like if you stole something you're gonna end up with your hands chopped uh if you spoke something that you wasn't supposed to talk to say you know like about 
you know, if you're, uh, if you're, um, you know, uh, what do you call these? Uh, yeah, like a whistleblower or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, or cut your tongue. Yes. Or your or your throat basically kill you. Um, so yeah, these these guys don't really rely on putting you in jail uh, or you know getting you to mob justice. Right? Yes, it's they just kind of deal with you themselves. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and again, not, not all of them, because most most of the criminal organization will tell you we don't extort. We are the good guys. We're here kind of fighting against the other guys who are extorting you. That's propaganda. That's not not real. All of them are doing extortion, kidnapping, killings, all that stuff. When you went into the home uh, subsequently, what kind of things did you find in Ovidio's home? You know, he, he comes across as, uh, as you talked about, kind of just like a nondescript family man but i think we would learn a lot about him uh in a way you know he isn't the most powerful brother he tell me about kind of the family structure of chapo guzman because i i know that you know he has i think nine children i mean some are very young uh, right to that newer wife but yeah th they're actually half brothers uh ivan and, and the other brother and then ovidio yeah. kind of talk about his status and kind of what you found when you went into the home totally so the Chapo Guzman is said to have over 30 kids. Uh, 30? Yeah, wow. like ten, 10 of them. I thought are, it was like nine or 10. Yeah, like 10 of them are kind of like recognized people, you know? But, so he may have, you know, 10. But he probably has many, many more. Um, and, but I guess the major faction of his sons is composed of uh, sons from two different marriages, right? Uh, Ivan Archivaldo, Guzman, and Jesus Alfredo are from one family and then Joaquin and Ovidio are from another family. Um, another, there was another kid called Edgar who was killed in 2008 yeah. um, to a very, you know, like known in, in Culiacan um, story that when they killed uh, Chapo's son, he bought every single flower in the, in, in the whole city of Culiacan and delivered, you know, like dumpsters full of flowers were in the place where he was killed. And that's, uh, I don't know if that's true. I haven't seen any photos or anything, but that's a story that goes around Culiacan, you know, every time you bring up uh, Edgar Guzman's name. Um, and so, yeah, basically you have these two separate kids. The oldest are uh, Jesus Alfredo and Ivan Archibaldo. And then the, the second ones are Ovidio and Joaquin. Uh, I think... El Chapo wanted something very different for, for Ovidio specifically. He is the one who gave uh, him the nickname of uh, El Raton because he looks like a mouse. You know, he's, uh, he's uh, big ears and big front tooths and very skinny, you know, like. So I guess he, he called him El Raton. He sent him to one of the most exclusive elite schools in Mexico City um, when he was a kid to elementary school. And then when he broke out of prison for the first time in 2001, he knew that he was going to be a target. He knew that his son, the son he really wanted to be something different than a drug trafficker, was going to be a target because he was already being targeted by his uh, classmates. You know, they, they had a travel, had a trip to, a school trip to Disneyland. Um, and Ovidio was not invited. Ovidio was left behind because everybody started talking that he was the son of El Chapo and that El Chapo had uh, just recently broken out of uh, of prison and they didn't want to have him with them because they thought they were going to have pro problems when they got right. across the border. 
um, Griselda Lopez Ovidio's mom offered to pay for everyone's uh, trips, uh, expenses to LA if they included Ovidio with them. Uh, and they still say no, so Ovidio can't come with us. Um, and that forced El Chapo to bring Ovidio back to Culiacán to got him together with his brothers and to put him put them in charge of Ovidio. So he told all of the other brothers, like, guys, you need to take care of this kid. This is, the, this is my youngest. I don't want him involved in anything uh, that has to do with the cartel. I don't want him to be hurt. Just take. Do, do you think? Let me ask you. Do you? Why do you think that is? Do you think it was just he recognized maybe he wasn't like his other brothers, like he didn't have it in him in a way? Do you, I? I think that's 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 very probable. Or he saw himself a lot more in in Ovidio because they're very alike, not physically, but. And the way they are, the way they portray themselves, they're flashy. They want to be the center of attention. They want to be, you know, like calling for attention and not really calling the shots, but being recognized as something big. And, you know, like with women, they, they have, they, they are like very enticed to, to, to women, you know, like they love women. Sure. They have different, they've had very much different women around Sinaloa. So I guess he, he saw himself more in Ovidio than in the other guys for some reason. Um, but then again, Ovidio ended up, uh, you know, working with his brothers, with Ivan Archivaldo, who was already working with the organization. Um, Jesus Alfredo also was very, you know, known to be flashy with guns, to be flashy with like, I'm Guzman family and whatever. And Ovidio apparently wasn't really like that. He was more, more of a quiet kid. Uh, he loved cars. So he got himself, you know, like a bunch of different uh, Ferraris, Lambos, uh, Mercedes vans, and all of sorts of different cars. Um, and he will go out. He, I remember when the first years I started going to Culiacán, uh, if you were around the um, Tres Rios Strip, which is a, a wealthy neighborhood, where you have, uh, you know, like great American restaurants and Starbucks and everything, you'll you will see like a Lamborghini riding a, a, across the the um, street, and everybody will know that's a video, right? Everyone's like, oh, there, there goes a video, and and I started asking like, who's a video? And it's like a, a chapel's one of the chapels on, uh, but he was more used to go around without security, without you know, like uh, an army behind him. I, I I think he felt more, you know, like free because he wasn't really calling the shots or, you know, having anything really to do with the organization until later up when he, to fund him, himself and his lifestyle, he definitely started putting cocaine, heroin and, and fentanyl to the border of Sonora, to Nogales. That's the place uh, that his older brother, Ivan Archivaldo, um, put him in charge of. So you're going to be in charge of putting drugs to this specific area. Nothing really compared to what Ivan Archivaldo and Jesus Alfredo were putting up uh, to in, in the, into the US, right? Like he, they were putting tons and tons of, uh, of drugs while Ovidio had a small uh, operation. You know? um, then when they captured El Chapo in 2017, when he was extradited to the US, uh, he left everything to Ivan Archivaldo. He was the one in charge and that broke a war inside the Sinaloa cartel because of Chapo's godfather, El Compadre del Chapo, uh, who was the uh, head of the prison where he broke 
for the first time. It was basically El Chapo broke out of this prison, this maximum security prison, with the help of Damaso Lopez, El Licenciado. And in exchange for that loyalty, he made him part of the family of the Guzmans, right? He he asked him to be godfather for his sons. He was basically a brother to El Chapo. So when El Chapo was extradited, eh, Damaso Lopez thought that he was going to be the next stop, right? He was the oldest. He proved himself to the cartel. He had a bunch of different, you know, uh, operations already, a lot of men. And he had uh, lost his job as uh, the director of that maximum security prison. Right to go straight to the Guzmans. And he was in charge of Los Chapitos. He was in charge of the, of the kids, right? So I, I guess he felt that he was going to be the next stop, but El Chapo left everything to Ivan Guzman. So Damaso tried to uh, break um, a truce or a deal with the Cartel Jalisco, with El Mencho. Uh, and they knew that Los Chapitos were, at, at one point, they knew that Los Chapitos were a fancy restaurant in Jalisco. And that's where they were kidnapped, the three of them, inside a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Everybody says that it was El Mencho and that it was El Cartel Jalisco. And it's half true because, yes, it was El Cartel Jalisco. But, uh, you know, in a deal with Damaso Lopez, when Los Chapitos learned that Damaso, their, basically their uncle, was behind that, they started fighting against him. And then he sent a letter to everyone asking for a meeting in the hills of Culiacan to clear his name because he said that I had nothing to do with that. That was someone else. When everybody arrived there again, he then again went after them. He tried to kill all of them in a massive shootout, uh, surprise shootout he had prepared for them. So it was an ambush, really. It was an ambush. And, and then that, of course, escalated the war against the Damasos and his son. So the Damaso and his son, they both in different times had to leave and to turn themselves over to the U.S. authorities. Otherwise, they were going to be killed. So in a way, like the Chapitos are dealing with multiple issues, right? Because they're yeah. dealing with possibility that the government's going to come in and arrest them. And you would agree that the arrest of a video is pretty much kind of a bluster probably to impress joe biden probably in a way and you know the president was kind of made look look stupid when he released him the first time mm -hmm. you know, the real as you kind of talked about the real people pulling the strings and chapitos are the older brothers but they're also dealing with the damaso stuff they're dealing with you know we haven't even talked about el mayo sambada who you know he's a fascinating person because you know in when I look at it, you know, if, if that were someone in the mafia, I mean, they would be a stone cold, you know, we know why they haven't been arrested because they're protected. Right. Yeah. So, so the Chapitos are kind of dealing with all these different things. Exactly. But I think one thing Damaso didn't realize is blood is always thicker than anything else. And he was always going to probably leave it to his kids. Absolutely. What's the status of him today? Damaso. Damaso is still being held in a U.S. Uh, prison. And that's best for him. Yes, and I think his son, El Mini Leak, Damaso Jr., is about to be released really probably probably this year. What uh, do you think will be the goal of him? Uh, I think he's gonna it's gonna want to stay in the US, uh, absolutely. Man. Like they know that they're gonna face their faith if they are turned over to Mexico, especially if they go back to Sinaloa. Uh, these guys never forget as, as uh, you know, like as the usual mafia, these guys never forget. And and if they have enemies, they're going to wait for the right time to get rid of them. Let's talk about an interesting guest for you there. 
Be yes, absolutely, man. Yes, yes. If you can make that happen, that'd be good for you. Will be very interesting. Yes, to to. So, with with you know the, the arrest, you know, I'll ask you, and then I kind of want to ask you about Mayo. But Ovidio, I mean, the goal is of this country is to extradite him because, as you know, once the U.S. gets involved and brings you here, you're not doing anything. It's yes. over for you, and you're gonna go to ADX or wherever it is, and that will be that. Do you think that will happen? And B, um, at what point does the government get serious? Do they ever actually go after Yvonne or any of these folks? Because it seems quite honestly that, you know, it's better off having them around than not having them around. Yes. I think what is happening right now is that the uh, Mexican and the U.S. government are trying to intimidate and demoralize that faction of the Sinaloa cartel, the Chapitos faction specifically. They grabbed the oldest, the major one, the Chapo Guzman. He's extradited. Um, his uh, conditions in prison, we've all read about his conditions in prison where he's not allowed to even have any daytime, uh, daylight, you know, sunlight or whatever. He's but he allowed. caused that himself. Yeah, Remember? yeah, exactly. Escaping yeah. and all that stuff. Exactly. <laughs> so that's been very demoralizing to the Sinaloa cartel's Chapitos faction. And now they grabbed the youngest one. Ovidio. So that really demoralized a, a, an organization, right? They feel that they it, they are portrayed as if they don't have enough power, they grab the old one and now the youngest one. So so now what's in the middle? Who's going to be next? They, they've earned themselves a lot of new enemies, uh, starting with uh, Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, uh, the CJNJ, the Beltran Leyva's organization, what's left for the Beltran Leyva's organization, um, you know, the, Los Damasos, uh, and and they're not in such a great standing with El Mayo and with El Chapo's brother, El Juano, El Juano Guzman. Um, they're not fighting. They're absolutely not fighting. They don't have any beef or turf around them, between them. But um, but they're definitely not in great standing because they they all wanted to they want all want to stay up ahead of the Sinaloa cartel. So I think this is a very smart you know operation to demoralize a, a single faction to make them feel that they're losing power, to make them more violent, uh, and then go again against them when they messed up, when they make a mistake for getting like desperately violent, all that stuff. Now they start an operation to go against El Nini, uh, which is the head of security for Los Chapitos, a young man from Tijuana, he's probably 32, 31 years old, uh, but he's very smart. He has the muscles, he has the power, firepower, uh, and he's proved himself valuable for the organization. So if they actually manage to grab El Nini, this organization is going to be so demoralized. You know, this organization is going to feel like they don't have any grasp of anything. Right now, how it works with El Mayo specifically is that El, when El Chapo was still out, El Mayo had an agreement with El Chapo and both of them were in control of Culiacán, which is basically the cradle of the Sinaloa cartel in Sinaloa. Um, but when, when El Chapo got out, he left everything for Los Chapitos. They became so violent that El Mayo had to retract from Culiacán. And he's a smart man. He doesn't really believe in fighting, you know, violent wars when there's nothing really to win. So what he did is uh, he negotiated Culiacán and Los Chapitos said like, well, you're going to have to pay 30% of every operation you want to bring into the city. He said, okay, that's that's fine. But he went 
and got a hold of all of the other border cities like San Luis Rio Colorado, Tijuana, um, Mexicali, Rosarito, all of those border cities. So when those chapitos need to use border cities to either bring guns yeah. in or drugs out, they're gonna, they're paying the same thirty percent to Ovalo. So smart. he's a smart man, man. Like he's now no dumb uh, man. Well, I want to ask you about him because he probably, I think it, at this point, you know, is probably one of the most interesting people still in Mexico, right? Because, you know, we hear about the Almenchos and the people like that who probably will never be caught. They're just too big and too powerful. But, you know, Mayo's a guy that he's, you know, in his 70s, right? He's in poor health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's not, you know, he's old, right? He yeah. doesn't look imposing, He's but he's protected and he's super powerful. In his entire life, he's never been to prison. And the questions that always come up is, how, right? You're this leader, this drug cartel, you know, how and, and why, and who's actually involved in protecting you? Yeah. And does the Mexican government even know they're protecting him? I guess I'll ask you, tell me a little bit about Mayo. And, and I also want to know, you've talked about in the past, uh, an individual, a shadowy figure called, um, and I don't, I don't have his name. You just call him this Cuban guy, right? Mm-hmm. And this Cuban guy goes back to the the 60s, essentially, yeah. in, in the Fidel Castro group. And this connects to the CIA. And I guess kind of talk about him and, and some of this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. So as, as, as you were saying, like, Mayo is a very mythical figure in the Sinaloa cartel. He was one of the founders. He's uh, probably 80-something years old now, and he's diabetic. So very probably he's going to die being the head of the Sinaloa cartel, never facing, you know, uh, the bars. Um, but he's been either very smart or has something that needs to be protected, not only by one government, but very probably by two governments, right? Mexico and the US. Uh, his, uh, his, be- his beginning, I guess the key is how he started, you know, to, to g- get involved in the Sinaloa cartel or in the tr- drug trade. Uh, I'm not sure if um, I'm not sure to say, you know, like that he's uh, a CIA asset or he works for any. But I asked the question because uh, literally the way he started was through this also shadowy figure that used to be a Cuban police officer under uh, Fidel Castro's revolution. When Fidel Castro uh, stepped up in Cuba after his revolution, he made he called him, you know, one of the top uh, police officers. In that revolution, then something happened that he left to Nicaragua, apparently already working with, for for one of the agencies, you know, like giving information, doing operations for the CIA, uh, and he had to flee Cuba, stay in Nicaragua for a while. When Nicaragua was also facing a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of issues with the Communist Party and communist groups in Nicaragua, so he did a lot of work also in Nicaragua. And then I'm guessing that through those connections, he got um, he got a U.S. Um, birth certificate because there is a birth certificate of this man. His name is Antonio Cruz. He's known as Nico. And he got a birth certificate and he moved to Miami. And while in Miami, he started importing a bunch of cocaine from Colombia. Uh, and that's where he started that business. Afterwards, he moved him to, to Los Angeles when he basically founded what we know now is the Sinaloa Cartel. 
because he started managing a bunch of weed from Sinaloa to LA because he had all the, all the clients, all the permissions, um, all the money and the right connection. So he had, he knew how to do the business, even when the Sinaloa cartel wasn't really aware that they could do, I mean, the Sinaloa cartel didn't really exist. Even when the Sinaloa traffickers didn't really know that they could do a huge business with weed. They were selling to tourists, they were selling small quantities, exporting some breaks to the US, but not in a formal way, in a structured way. So you're saying this guy from Cuba is mm-hmm. kind of the originator of the Sinaloa cartel in a way. Absolutely, yes. And yes. what work you've done, you essentially uncovered that his wife is actually Elmayo's sister. Exactly. He, uh, so he that's traveled. how Elmayo gets connected. Exactly. Wow. So he traveled to Culiacan after like putting that business on. He met Modesta Zambada, El Mayo's Zambada's o- o- older sister. He married her, and then he brought in El Mayo as uh, as his kid, as his own son. So he inherited the whole business, the whole connections, the whole you know like uh, clients in the U.S. Probably also his own connections with the CIA. Sure. And ever since. El Mayo started going up and up the ladder with the help of Nico. Then Nico disappears from history. We don't know what happened, where he died, when he died. We know about Modesta Zambada, that she was still around Culiacán uh, Culiacán and certain other places in Sinaloa. Uh, And then she died. But we we don't know anything about Nico. Um, So who really knows... uh, who Nico was. Now, his name is really well known in Sinaloa. If you go to very small places where Mayo Zambada was born and is living as of this day, which is a small place called El Alamo, um, people will, will, will react when you say Nico or Antonio Cruz, but they will immediately shush you. Like, I got a, I got, I recently got a, an, an, a, an interesting message. I get a lot of threats, right? I get a lot of reaction, threats, everything. And this guy from Sinaloa working for the organization, he kind of like told me just to shut the fuck up talking about the Guzmans and everything. And then when I posted this story on my YouTube channel about Nico, uh, Antonio Cruz, he told me that there's a, there's a lot of things that you don't tell and, and, and especially you don't publish. So... He's like very, you know, like thinking that you cannot put that name out, even though it's public records. I mean, if you go to certain libraries in Sinaloa or Ciudad Juarez or different places where to look for, you'll find his name, a photo of himself, his connection with the CIA, his work in Cuba. But you'll never find where or when did he die. Um, You'll find his relationship with with Modesta Zambada and all of that stuff. So, you know, essentially the U.S. government is very involved with what's going on and actively allowing these individuals to keep doing what they're doing. I mean, do we actually know that Elmayo is actually still alive? I mean, would we actually know when he dies? I mean, because I heard um, real quick, I heard like Johnny Mitchell, for instance, like I heard him talking about how, you know, and you, you probably have discussed this too, like the level of security where like he's like basically on a mountain and there's like so many different people below that it, you have to get through one group and then to another and then to another. Yeah. And by the time you get to the top, it's you know, the only way you could really get him would be to like airstrike him, I guess, maybe. Or yeah. The, the thing is, is there's like, if when you, when you go to Jesus Maria, to, you know, when, where, where Ovidio was, my was captured, it's a small town, 40 kilometers, 40 minutes North of Culiacan. 
um, in the footstep of a, of a small hill. And he used to have uh, 19 different security rings, right? The outer and then inner, inner. His inner security ring is uh, or was composed by really young people. You will think that he had, you know, like former special police, whatever. No, like just like kids. 29, 30, 32 years old kids, very well armed and, uh, and with a bunch of radios, right? Listening to everything was happening around. Um, where Omayo lives currently, it's exactly the same, but south of Culiacan, almost also like 40 minutes um, south of Culiacan in the footsteps of a, of a low hill. I was not really close to what they say they lived. I mean, he lived, but I was with this inner circle of security, the, the guys who take personally care of Omayo. These guys were, they were actually celebrating the 30 second uh, the 30 the 32th birthday of one of them so they are around like the 30s 32 33 years old um i managed to i, I they didn't allow me to record anything to you know like to have video or photo but one of the kids was uh i think i guess the youngest one it was like 27 28 he had a full belt uh with uh different walkies right he had like 20 something different walkies that would repeat the same thing over and over until the last one. So one will say, I don't know, let's, uh, if you say code, so they will say like, we have a next one uh, at the five door. We have a next one at the five door. We have that same. And the then elaborate. Exactly. Like, the, wow. the X one moved to the fourth door. The X one moved to the fourth door. And he was not drinking. He was not using anything. He was nothing. He was just literally quiet because his only job is to be you know, listening to what's happening in the radios because that's how they're going to know what's happening. At some point in that during that night, uh, the main guy, which was a really young guy, really nice people, you know, like they invited us to a, a cookout and they had a, a birthday cake. They had his uh, young girl singing uh, Narco Corrido about El Mayo Zambada and everything. At one point, he shows us all. He's like, Shh, quiet. And then he goes and talks to that guy with the radios. And they start saying, so yeah, they got, they burned, the Mexican military burned one of our, one of our labs, Fenton labs around, around the city. So I was like, yeah, but I'll go, right? They're not moving in. And the other guy was like, no, apparently they moved out. They just burned the lab and left. And he's like, ah, whatever, let's see without tomorrow. And then he turned off his personal radio and just told that guy to be, you know, like, just listen. yeah, listening to the, to the radios. And I asked him like, why, why do you have a belt full of radio that are basically saying the same thing over and over? And he told me it, each one of those security, each one of those radios was uh, a security ring, right? So whenever the security ring number one will hear something, it will communicate everything up to the first security ring where we were. Um, so El Mayo has enough time to leave, but also it's not really hard to get him. Everybody knows where he is, where he's leaving, where he's getting medical attention. Um, everybody that's the same with, with, with Ovidio. What do we know about, um, like El Mayo? Like, does he, like, it's just like a, a, a normal existence. Like he has a home and like a wife there and they just have dinner and, you know, maybe he, you know, walks around his property. Like what, what is his life like? Because, you know, really, and I, I want to ask you this kind of as the everarching question in this whole thing, like, Everything you're discussing, it, it seems like quite a miserable existence, really. 
uh, yes. these people, right? You're constantly, you, do you ever actually get to enjoy, like El Chapo made billions of dollars, you know, and, and these guys make so much money, but you know, do they ever actually really get to enjoy their life? It sounds like a, a miserable existence. What, what do we know about, like, what does he do on a daily basis? He sit inside and watch TV all day. You know, it, it's it's fascinating that this guy is the guy that runs everything. Dude, it's it's so crazy because again, like when they when they when when they talk about the power that El Chapo had and all the millions and billions of dollars he had, very probably it did. But again, I guess El Chapo was mostly a face or a facade for the real powers behind these so-called uh, kind of the front guy, yeah, exactly. And the real guys behind that are attorneys, businessmen police officers, uh, even, you know, U.S. politicians, all those guys. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't grasp the idea that someone like El Chapo, you know, coming from such an ignorant place, uneducated, from a small place called La Tuna in Sinaloa, will manage this huge enterprise, right? Um, so I'm pretty sure he was the most flashy, the one who wanted to have the reflectors looking at him. Um, and he was serving a purpose for that organization. Now, that organization really changed through the years, through the recent years. It went from being a hierarchical organization, very, you know, um, vertical to an horizontal organization where you have different leaderships intertwining between them and switching places. And, 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 and then after probably the 2000s, the world entered a gig economy, right? Everybody of us are now freelancers for someone. No one is really on a payroll. Everybody's just doing gigs for someone, but can do the gig for another company. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and these organizations did the same. They became decentralized and, be, and, and started working on a gig economy. So the suppliers for drug precursors are under the gig economy. They don't really sell only or exclusively to the Sinaloa cartel or to one man, to, to El Mayo, call it that way. They sell to El Mayo, to El Guano, to Los Alazar, to whichever. They also sell to Carte Jalisco Nueva Generación and to, you know, like different other factions. Arms traffickers, same stuff. Uh, when people are trying to move coking lots, uh, let's, let's say that you want to move 10, uh, you know, kilos of cocaine and I want to move 10 kilos or five kilos of heroin. And we'll get to, even if we don't work together uh, on the same organization, or whatever, I have a very good plug that, you know, like they, he's uh, he's really good at moving product to, from Culiacan to the border. So everybody kind of works in tandem to, to make it it's, happen. Exactly. They're like the, you know, what we would, you know, we have here, you know, like FedEx or UPS or whatever, they all kind of work hand in hand in currying things. Yes, exactly. So that's basically how that works. Everybody's like putting money together like investors to a lot of cocaine or whatever and then get their money back and never touch the product. Um, so that's literally how this world is working right now. So El Mayu is probably in charge of one of that faction, of one of the major or, or biggest operations of that brand because the Sinaloa cartel became a brand right now. It's a, it's a, it's a brand that it's actually for hire, right? If you are trying to open shop in Africa, like they're trying to do right now. Uh, and the biggest name around the world is the Sinaloa cartel. You're gonna ask permission, you're gonna ask to use the brand to move their product, but that's gonna be you, uh, Luis Chaparro in Africa on your own, with your own means, just- You're like a, 
they, they essentially have franchises. Franchise, yes. Right. Exactly. So like McDonald's has these locations that they don't actually own. There's someone yeah. that runs it. You yeah. know, they're kind of the figure up top, but they run it to people. So let me ask you, like, how much of the, the things that we hear in Mexico, how much is it just bluster and it's it's cool to hear in like the headlines? It's sensational. Like we heard recently in California there was a cartel hit. Yeah. And it was not actually a cartel hit. How much of it is just they're all kind of working together and for the most part it's pretty quiet, yet there's this media and this press that blow it out and make it sound way worse than it actually is. That's that's the thing. Like it's really hard to go really into the weeds in a news story, right? So you have to yeah. be very broad and very general. And I guess that serves a purpose, right? When it's easier to call it the Sinaloa cartel to everyone, everyone is Sinaloa cartel than it is to call it a faction or a branch or an affiliated or an associated or an independent man giving services to one faction of the Sinaloa cartel in specific region, right? It's it's really difficult to explain all that. That's that's one of the major things that I'm trying to do when I post videos and stories and you know a lot of stuff on my Instagram account. I'm trying to sort of and, and quote unquote educate people to make this new version of how this actually works and that it gets like generalized so we all understand that there is no single Sinaloa cartel, no single cartel Jalisco, mm-hmm. and that actually the cartel means something very different than what we think is a cartel. Yeah. The cartel is actually the armed branch of an organization. So when you call somebody cartel, what you're really saying is that man is one of those guys with big firepowers, dressed fully camo, uh, you know, like bulletproof. The bands. armed people. Unarmed people. But if you call Ovidio part of the cartel, he's part of the organization. He's one of the heads of the organization, but not really part of the Sinaloa cartel. He's part of the Sinaloa organization. That's what I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, because I want to ask you two more questions. And and one of them had to do with journalism, right? Because, you know, I, for one in in America, am pretty sickened with the level of journalism, whether it's CNN or Fox, it really doesn't matter. They're all the same propaganda machines for whoever they support. Yeah. But I think people like you are really important. And I look at, um, you know, people like, you know, even like a borderland beat, you know, people yeah. like that. Right. That report on independent sources and news. Um, Mexico last year in 2022, they had the deadliest year for journalists ever. Right. Yeah. It's an extremely dangerous profession. Um, you know, how important is the work you do, do you think? Because as we know, the media in every country is a lot different than it used to be. Um I guess, how do you make this better? How do you continue doing what you do? What do you ultimately want to get out of this? Like, what's the goal? Is just to continue to educate people and, and, and let them know what's going on? I mean, I honestly very few times think about if what I do is important or has, you know, a major impact or something like that. You know what I'm trying to do? And I guess that's, we're going back full circle to the beginning I started this with a bunch of questions, like why all of a sudden the son of the Lord of the Skies was with me at the school and his dad was seen as a major businessman and now he's seen as a criminal. Why? Why did they kill my five friends that same night? What happened? How did it all get to where it has, right? Yeah, so I'm I'm on this, I, I don't know, it's crazy to call it a journey, but I guess I'm on this journey trying to answer questions for my own. For Yeah stuff that I don't know, that I don't get, stuff that I got wrong at the beginning and that now I'm getting it right. And then five years from now, I'm going to know that I got it wrong again. So I'm trying to get it right again. And 
things that are changing. And, you know, so whenever I have the opportunity to go and embed with these people that are actually human beings and, you know, regular people just with different backgrounds, different present, um, I try to put a lot of attention to every detail, like how they speak between each other, how they talk, what kind of words they use. Is that how they, you know, call a shot? Is that how they kill someone? Is that how they order tons of loads to the U.S.? Are they really in charge of this emporium of drugs or are they just hustling people? Are they actually that wealthy or are they, you know, they have money, they, they live well, but not that well. Are they really hiding or is that a facade? Is, uh, you know, are they really working with the Mexican government or not really, or part of it, or if partial true? And I found that most of my questions are partially answered because the answer is yes and no at the same time. It's very complicated when you say like, are cartels working with the Mexican government? It's yes and no at the same time. Yes, sometimes they are when they serve a purpose in certain regions with certain groups. But no, as a general, like they're not working with Mexico's president directly, you know, it's uh, I guess there is a lot to say in between the weeds, you know, like everything that happens to into the weeds is where you are going to find more truth to it. But it's going to take more, way more than an 800 article in a magazine and CNN and Vice News or whatever you, you want to call it. It's going to take much more than that. It's going to take a full narrative through the years, you know, to. Yeah in a full workload when you say, you know, I know, I don't know. I've, I've read Luis Chaparro over the last 15 years and I kind of feel that I kind of get it. Um, but I also read these are Ian Grillo's three latest three books and they and I compare both and kind of get it. So you need to look at these in a full spectrum, which is going to take a lot of time from all of us to just write stories over and over well, how much does um, misinformation play into that, too? Because I, I saw something recently on, you know, the, these these little like Facebook pages, right? That are, that are essentially the news in these areas, right? Because most people don't trust the news in general. So they have these like independently run like Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. And I saw one, I think Vice did it. It was about in Tijuana. They have like these three different groups and they're just like unidentified people that just report on shit. Um like, what does that play into what you do, too? Because they're putting out stuff that might be different or maybe they have a relationship with someone you don't. Yeah. What are they doing? Right now, that's the, that's the biggest weapon against journalists in, in, in Mexico. Of course, many of, of, of my colleagues have been uh, getting killed in Mexico. And that's also part of the propaganda, right? To stop from, journalists from going further and to investigate. Do you think they're um, the cartels themselves or the government possibly? I, I think it's mostly politicians. Um, whenever you start looking into who was that journalist killed and go 10 kills before, there's a pattern. Pattern mm -hmm. is they are very uh, impoverished journalists, very vulnerable people that had the support of just themselves, not even their own bosses for the small media companies they work for, hyper-local focused, and they were recently working on a political aspect of a story. So that's basically the same pattern from the last probably 20 uh, journalists killed in Mexico. And that that's selling a story. They Because they are from different states where different organizations are operating. Um, they have worked, uh, you know, different cartels, different names. 
it doesn't really make sense that like it looks like now every single cartel is killing all journalists in every single state, which is crazy. Uh, but the one pattern they have is they always go against a governor, a candidate for a for major uh, congressman, a politician that wants to give the next step on his you know criminal career, cor corruption career. You know, yeah, they're the real scummy people, essentially. Exactly. And of course, it, it, then again, like all the misinformation, there are, there are misinformation that it's, you know, like unintentional. When you unintentionally said something because that, that's what you thought at the beginning and your source was uh, not right and whatever. But there is dangerous uh, intentional misinformation. Like that's the biggest weapon right now. I was, I was just telling you that. Like right now, what the government, Mexican government is doing is that whenever you are an uncomfortable journalist, they will probably not kill you immediately. What they were gonna do is gonna pay other journalists to start versions of you, that you mm -hmm. abuse the girl, that you are, you know- Smear uh, campaigns. Yes, the smear campaign until you're left alone, without a work, without job, you're desperate. And then you are basically banned from, every, from, from everywhere. And then you're most, vulnerable and then they're going to send someone to kidnap you and say that either they robbed you or you was going to get assaulted or that you tried to rob someone and a police shot you or they're, gonna, they're just going to put you in jail i mean quintana roo in the very south of the where cancun sits in mexico has like over five or six different journalists in jail accused of the same thing that is basically like sexual abuse or something sexual it's harassment. all just bullshit and they're just trying to eliminate them Exactly. And now they're going to, it's worse because they, they face jail where they're getting raped every day, where they're getting bitten every day. And they don't even know how much time they're going to spend there, you know? So that's basically the new weapon against journalists. And, and that's the thing. That's, that's the thing that is worrying for everybody of, of one of us because that same weapon works in the US, Mexico, Canada, Europe, right? A smear campaign using your own colleagues can can put you down super yeah. easily right well it's sickening and it's you know again it goes back to the whole you know it seems like the real scumbags here are the mexican government <laughs> they seem like the real scumbag and that's i think what we've learned everywhere it's you know that you have these crime groups whether it's the cartels or the mafia or or andrew tate or someone yes. like th yes. they're always painted as the worst people when in turn, it's really the governments that are the worst people. I want to, I want and I don't want to keep you forever. I just have two really like kind of broad questions. You, you, you mentioned your life like at the beginning and you talked about how, you know, you, 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 you seem like you had great parents and they, they try to keep you away from that. And you, you ultimately turned into like this journalism guy and you now have this career. Another guy that recently has been in the news is La Barbie, right? Mm -hmm. This guy, Edgar Valdez Villarreal. And, um, you know, he was from a border town, you know, kind of had a similar life in a way, you know, upper yeah. middle class. He had a regular career and a life and went to school. And then he went into that world. Mm -hmm. What do you think the difference is between you and him? Why did you decide, like, not to go into that world? Like, What made you be the opposite of him? I guess it had to do with... Uh... With your family values, man. I think probably yeah. La Barbie had everything and didn't was was not scars at all as myself. That is not gonna make a difference. What's gonna make a difference is what values are transmitted from your family to you. Um, the Barbie, I have the impression that was very much left alone, uh, you know, by his parents. 
He was making choices on his own. Everybody he was wanted. trying to figure out his life on his own. And I had the fortune to have my, my, my dad and my mom, you know, like to sort of guide me. And even though they also work a lot and I spend many, many days uh, alone, I had a family at the end of the day to rely on and to, uh, you know, because I also met a bunch of those people and I enjoyed my time uh, when I was uh, probably in high school, uh, you know, going around with people that ended up being part of cartel, you know, ended up as sicarios or drug dealers, as drug traffickers, um, as the head of regional um, criminal organizations. And I ended up being a journalist. And I, I, I remember that we had great times using like every single drug you could imagine, you know, and partying until probably for three days, not coming back home. Um, and I was the one with money, so I was paying for a lot of those drugs, a lot of those rides here and there. I was, uh, I, 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 my dad's, my parents used to live in this um, gated community, beautiful house, five different rooms and everything. And, the, and I was literally spending my whole day in a, in a slum in, in Ciudad Juarez, in a very impoverished place where I enjoyed myself and I enjoyed my friends. Um, but then at some point, I thought like, I mean, this is not enough. This is this is cool to to party it for a couple of days. This isn't what I want out of my life. But at, at the end, it's not. I, I don't feel fulfilled, you know, around these these people. I want to pursue a career. I want to become someone. I want to know and learn. I, I guess I've always been sort of like addicted to learning new stuff. So I learned how to play guitar, and then uh, the drums, and then the the harmonic harmonica, and then to write and to read a lot. I started building a huge uh, li uh, um, no library, uh, a huge... Uh, like shelf. Yeah, a huge shelf and reading a lot of poetry and read a lot of fiction and then nonfiction uh, and, and then movies. And I, you know, I, I had my parents' um, basement turn into a cinema club, you know? So that put me out of that world. And I think... Just like culture, body. really, like that—that that kind of like different culture, like yeah, exactly. knowing that you know, just where I am right now is not the only thing that there's a big world out there, right? Yeah. There's and, other things. I want to ask you kind of a question relating to that. Nowadays, you know, you have a very busy life. Like you're, you're seeing some really awful things, right? You're dealing with characters that are, as I said earlier, very depraved people. How do you um, get away from this world? You know, like, do you have a family? Like, what do you, like, how do you just go home and like make yeah. dinner and like watch something? Like, how do you, like, how do you program yourself off from that? Because, you know, in a way you kind of have a similar life to the people that you're covering. Yes. Like it, it's, I, I don't want to say it's a miserable existence like, studying <laughs> these people, but it kind of is. I mean, in a way, like I know this, the work that I do, it's like, I, you know, I feel like my whole life involves the mafia and like looking into these people. And it's like, I, they live a miserable life that I don't want for myself or my family. How do you get away from that? At the very beginning, it was, it was really, really difficult because I was, uh, I mean, I remember one time in 2015, I was basically stationed in um, Nogales because I was trying to, to produce a documentary for Netflix that it's out there. It's, it's, called, mm -hmm. um, it's called Dope. And I was yeah. producing the first uh, episode in Mexico. Um, so I had to go through a very high on top uh, guy in Sonora. So I stayed there for over a month and I had to live in between that world, you know, a hotel 
And then he will call me three in the morning and I had to drive in the middle of nowhere for three hours to go and meet him and he will never show up. And I will go back super scared back to my hotel the next night again and again and again for a month until I went to, he actually trusted me enough. And then we met and he granted me full access to all of his warehouses, his men, everything. So it was really good access that I managed to get back then. But when I got back home, I was like super quiet, super, you know, into with my head to wrap around myself. And I was like very jumpy, very nervous, paranoid. I started like drinking a lot and, you know, like going full out when something will happen. I was like, oh, what the fuck's happening? And, you know, and I was like, this is this is not all right. And, and this is a consequence of my job. I, like I spent too much time alone, too much time driving, traveling in planes, uh, feeling fear, having uh, adrenaline bursts, you know, like, and then nothing happened. And then another adrenaline peak and then nothing. And that makes you addict to adrenaline. That makes you quiet. It makes you a very, you know, lonely person. And I still like, I still feel like that in many ways, I'm still like that. I, I'm very much a lonely person. I have only a very few friends that I can call my friends. And I don't really talk to anyone of, about my work. Uh, my family and my friends around me, they've learned to not to ask me a lot about my work and everything. So I basically um, use also therapy. I go to, 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 to therapy to debrief everything, to yeah. get everything out. And, and when I feel fear, I recognize the fear in me and, and I raise it and I, I, you know, like I basically hold it and say like, yeah, it's good to, to have fear. You know, it's good that I, I still have fear for my life and that something's going to happen to me because uh, that's what's keeping me alive. When I feel that I need to cry, I go and cry and, you know, like to debrief. So I use every single other thing that I can get to debrief myself. So when I get back home, um, a family, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad again, I'm a husband, uh, I, I make uh, breakfast every morning, I get my kid ready to school. Um, at the same time, I'm getting messages sometimes from sources, sometimes they're even threatening me and saying like, dude, or we're gonna go do this and that or whatever. And I just put my phone away and keep getting my kid ready for school. You just try to have some balance. Uh... Put my mind, because right now I'm with them and my most important thing is right now to get ready to school taking safe to school and then I can deal with everything afterwards. And then I deal with my shit, you know, with my stuff. If I had to answer the message, if I had to call an authority, if I had to call an NGO for help, if I need to do this and that, I do it until a certain hour in the day. And then again, I leave everything at my office and go out and face my family in my regular normal life, you know, and, Try to not to. Mix so in a way, it. your your life will always probably be affected by this, right? I mean, it's yes, absolutely. So that's what it is. Absolutely. I almost feel myself like I've lucked. I mean, again, I I'm not saying the mafia is not around, but it, it's yeah. it's not what it once was. I'm sure 20, 30 years ago, I couldn't do what I do talking about this stuff. It wouldn't, you know, and you're kind of living that life now. Um, but I'm glad you, you know, I don't want to say I'm glad you do, but I'm happy to because the work you do is uh, fascinating and very good. And I have to tell you, before I get to the last question, this is, um, I've done a lot of interviews. I've interviewed CI or not CI, DEA, uh, FBI, judges. I've interviewed mobsters themselves, Sammy Gravano. I mean, yeah. this is probably the most interesting interview I've ever done. I think it's fascinating. I appreciate you coming on, seriously. Um, Thank you. 2024, man. it's a pivotal year, and I'll mm -hmm. tell you why. 
in Mexico and here. Okay, one of the reasons is, and I'm curious what you think. We've forgotten the name Osiel Cardenas. Yes. We've forgotten that name. He's been in prison for about 20 years. Um, he essentially created, um, you know, something that took the cartel from one version to another. He created yeah. this group called Los Zetas, this paramilitary mm -hmm. group full of these very um, uh, distinctive military men. And he ruled with an iron fist. And then he went away and they became this awful group of depraved people that hurt people and, you know, just put out these awful things. Yeah, He's getting out of prison in 2024. I guess my question is two part. What is the golf cartel? Because golf cartel is kind of almost, um, I wouldn't say displaced. They're still around, but you know, we've seen other groups pop up. The Zetas are long gone, but they still have kind of some splinter groups. Golf cartel is still kind of there though. What is his return to Mexico look like? It's kind of frightening that, we're just going to let him out of prison and he's going to go to do what he does. It's not like he's going to go become a, a chef or something. Yeah. And also Donald Trump has made it clear in this country that he's likely going to run for president again. Now he's been very outspoken that if he does get in and let's say he is the elect, I would find it hard to believe he doesn't get elected. Joe Biden is in a bad way right now in this country, very low on the approval rating. Um, he has talked about actively attacking the drug cartels. Do you ever see a day where like covert missions are happening where Donald Trump is nuts enough to think that he could take them all out? Do you ever think that happens? I don't think so, man. I, I know I know that these guys uh, that end up being presidents in the U.S. or Mexico, they're, they're smart people. They're not uneducated. They are pretty, yeah. even though they seem uneducated and, you know, very poor even uh, trump yes exactly even even though they seem very uneducated and very you know poor and their lectures and everything i'm pretty sure that they are pretty smart yeah. um and i'm pretty sure that they know the the um backlash that this could have right going full on call the calling them terrorists and going full on against them and as tucker carlson recently asked me on an interview uh if what will happen if they will just bomb the hell out of the cartels, you know, and all that stuff, which is crazy. But um, you think immigration is a problem now? Wait till that happens. Yes. Because then you're having to take these people in. Because yeah. once you once you put someone as a terrorist organization, you need to accept refugees. Exactly. Exactly. Right? That's the thing. It's going to backlash, man. Like yeah. the whole campaign that the Texas governor is putting out now, like Greg Abbott against the cartels, calling them terrorists. Is backfiring. That's why Texas is getting massive amounts of immigrants, and sure. they could have enough, you know, legitimacy to call themselves refugees if they're fleeing from a terrorist-controlled territory, right? And if the U.S. is calling them terrorists, right. then they will have to give asylum to every single one of the Mexicans. That's what I don't understand as to why they do things, those things. Because again, we understand it's a problem. Like the fentanyl crisis is a problem. I and mean, mm -hmm. thousands of hundreds of thousands of people are dying every day on the streets of yes. this country. But it, it almost seems like you're, you're really kind of defeating the purpose. It's like almost like, why don't you just try to almost help them instead of, you know, like like Haiti, for instance. Yes. Haiti is is an awful place. It is run literally by gangs. Mm -hmm. And all these people are leaving and wanting to come to the United States. Why don't we establish some sort of government there to help them, mm -hmm. you know, or, or, or go to Mexico and try to work with some of this stuff and and fix it. But that's the thing. Like, I think the I, I think the best way to help another country is to leave them alone, even yeah. if it's suffering. True. Because 
what happened in the Middle East, what happened in Afghanistan. The U.S. It's always backfired. Quote, unquote, they try to help them. They had to go out. And now it's even worse than how it was at the very beginning. We always have the to same, be the peacekeepers here, I've noticed. Exactly, and it never works. The same happened in Haiti, right? They try to go in and then it's all the same happening in Honduras. They just recently arrested the president for cocaine trafficking. Um, and like, so that's been happening over and over. Every time the U.S. also tries to help Mexico with uh, training people. That's what the set that started, right? Very well. Alberto Lascano was literally trained by the, the military in this country. Look at all the guns that come into Mexico. Where do you think they come from? They come from the U.S. And so every time the U.S. tried, even though even if they have the best intentions, it's probably not going to have the outcome because we're so close. But at the same time, we're so different. Both countries are so different that something that could work in the U.S., right? If in the U.S., if you call a certain group a terrorist organization, you're going to go full on against that terrorist group. And it's going to have probably a positive and expected outcome. But in places like Mexico, that's going to have a totally different outcome because we're, we're facing a very different moment at the time, like where corruption is widespread. We live on corruption or money or daily lives is made out of corruption because you skip line to, to get your payment first. Even if you're doing the right thing, you're still doing it the wrong way because corruption has penetrated every single part of our lives, education, health system, everything. So when you try to, you know, like stop a wound only by applying pressure, that blood is going to come out from somewhere else. And that's what's going to happen in, in Mexico every time you just... So you need to fix things in a very deeper, deeper way, you know, which is fixing corruption. How do you fix corruption? I have no clue. I guess the guy who finds out... It's gonna earn, you know, the, the Nobel Prize or whatever, because it's uh, it's uh, it's almost impossible to find out how to, you know, unroot corruption from 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 Mexico and countries like these. Yeah. But a lot has to do with the fact that we're next to a country that is powerful enough to to be responsible for a lot of all our political decisions, right? Uh, like like what happened with Ovidio. Everybody thought, oh, this is a gift for Biden, right? For President Biden. That's how intertwined we are with the U.S. politics, which, of course, I don't think it's the right thing to do. Like, we, we captured a video. It should be because the Mexican justice system works. But many of, like, in the reality, probably is not. It's probably just for the Mexican government to have enough leverage or an exchange coin with the U.S. government. Like, we have a video. We have Caro Quintero. We know you want him. What are you willing to give back in return? Right. You know, it's leverage. Right. That's the same, like, uh, talking again about the um, propaganda and branding, right? Like, the Sinaloa cartel brand is serving also a political purpose. Because if you want to go against a certain group, a certain family, a certain politician in Spain, in Africa, in Japan, in China, you're going to call them Sinaloa cartel. You're going to find one man that is importing cocaine and that has a link to a member, alleged member of Sinaloa cartel. You're going to call him Sinaloa cartel is operating here. We need to go and dismantle the Sinaloa cartel. And then that DA agent is going to end up being a congressman, a governor or something. Well, didn't they do that with like, there was a guy uh, years ago, uh, Sai Chi Lop, I believe his name was. He was this, you know, Chinese businessman, right? Yeah. And then they find like $200 million in cash in a, in a room 
And and I'm sure someone got elected through that, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, and we, I mean, we interviewed a guy, uh, Jaime Zapata, who was shot yeah. by uh, Los Etas. Yes. Um, and he was literally kicked to the curb. And the people that literally gave him the orders to do what he did and what got him shot, they ultimately became like higher up people, you know? Absolutely. And then we look at like the police and we say, well, I wonder why the police are like this. Well, the police are being trained by the people that did their job wrong yeah. 40 years ago. And it, it just all goes downhill. It's a domino effect really at every level. Real quick, as we end this, um, as you know, so southern border at the southernmost point, Tamalipas, major mm -hmm. um, entry into the America. That's a huge border point for the cartels. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, Gulf Cartel kind of, uh, you know, doing their thing. But there are these other groups now. What does the release of him mean? Is that is that is he now going to become a player again? I think I think Osiel is going to be even more surprised to find the state of things as he got out as he gets out. Right? He's going to find that, of course, Los Setas doesn't really exist anymore. There is a small group of Setas in southern Mexico trying to, you know, get back up with the help of uh, of uh, a lot of gangsters from 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 El Salvador. Um, trying to put together other groups with the country Jalisco and trying to get more deals with another um, uh, indigenous group trying to uprise in Southern Mexico. That's basically it. Cartel del Golfo, it's still sort of like working on a very regional level, trying to break deals with uh, people in Tijuana, uh, with some other guys uh, in, in, in Jalisco, but fighting a million different enemies. They're kind of splintered too, because there are like all these different groups. Exactly. Like Los Rojos and all these different. Exactly. Yeah. And then you you have the Cartel del Noroeste, which is basically dominating all of that border in the in the east uh, northern part of Mexico, uh, but that it's making its money mostly through kidnapping, extortion, and human smuggling, and so it's a very different world than what he left before being mm -hmm. extradited to the U.S. Right. So. He's going to have, first of all, a lot of enemies, a lot of new bosses, a lot less power. I guess his voice is still going to be heard in Mexico because that's what criminal organizations do. Like with Rafael Caro Quintero, I mean, he was not a player, an active player, but his voice was kind of like respected as an elder. You know, he was like, oh, yeah. well, he's one of the elders, he's one of the OGs. Let's hear what he has to say. But we don't really have to do what he has to say, you know. And um, and I guess that's what he's gonna what that Ociel is gonna is gonna face. Um, he's he's probably gonna try to go back up, but probably end up with a smaller regional group that still respects him. But for the most part, he's not gonna be who he was. Ociel Cardenas, right? He, he, was, he was quite influential, though. I wonder if. Um... You know who else would have had the idea? To, it was a fascinating idea to find these like military people to be like your security, right? Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. But crazy, a wild world you live in, a wild world you cover. Uh, again, very very interesting. This is one of the best uh, I think talks I've ever had. I appreciate you coming on. Before I let you go, I want you to tell everyone where can they find you. I want to let everyone know I linked uh, Lewis's um, YouTube channel in the description. You write for Vice and you do all sorts of things. And I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to hold you to this. If I ever come to Mexico with the company I work for, which I don't know if they'd even approve it because that'd be wild. I got to come with you. We, can you do that for me? Can we do Anytime, that? man. Yes, for sure. Let's, uh, let's make a, let's make a plan and let's. Could you imagine? 
let's do some interesting stuff around Mexico. We're happy to to have you here, man. And again, thank you for for having me here for putting my channel down here. I'm trying to. That's what I'm trying to channel all of my all of my stories. I work for many different news organizations. Um, you mostly easily you're gonna find my stories if you just Google my name and then something Luis Chaparro and whatever is happening at the current moment in place. But um, but most of my I guess strongest most uh, deep reported stories uh, are gonna be on my on my YouTube channel. Uh, which is uh, at Luis Chaparro, but just my name. And um, and yeah, I'm going to try to put up a story every single Sunday. I have a really cool interview uh, coming next week. And then the, the week after, I have this uh, weed documentary that we just talked about. That I'm, That's going to be something I'm putting out. looking forward to interesting to, to watch. Yeah. yeah, looking forward to seeing it. Your last two videos, I went to meet his men in Sinaloa which yes. <laughs> just sounds fascinating embedding with them. And then behind the scenes from inside El Chapo's son's home. And that's, I mean, all this stuff, just fascinating. And, um, and I'm glad you're reporting on it. You're really doing something that very few people are doing. So thank you for coming on. Uh, and maybe we'll speak to you again soon. Maybe if you're ever in New York, you come up, we'll meet in the office and, and have a conversation. Well, um, of course, man. Really good stuff. Thank you for coming on, Lewis. Thank you very much, man. It was, it was really cool talking to you, man. Appreciate that. And thanks everybody for listening. As always, go check out Lewis's YouTube channel in the description and go subscribe. Check out the stuff. I think you'll like it. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, here on